Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another roundtable event hosted by Altius Healthcare Consulting Group. Now, without any further delay, I'm going to pass it on over to Altius CEO, Stephanie Dorward. Thank you, and thank you, everyone, for joining today. I'm very excited to be joined by our panelists today from both ACT, our Arnett Carbis Toothman, as well as RCS Revenue Cycle Solutions. We have a, an exciting and packed slate for you, so we are going to keep our comments from the Altius Healthcare Consulting side short today and really focus in on the expertise and knowledge that our panelists are bringing to the table. The conversation today is going to be focused around all things finance, and in that, we're going to specifically address revenue cycle issues that deal with things such as contactless patient registration, as well as questions that we've received about how you can move your central business office to a remote access site. So we're moving into those. We'll talk about revenue cycle strategies. And then we're going to wrap up with some funding questions. And a lot of questions are coming into us about the funding options that exist right now. So we're excited today to be joined by Dan Theory and Mike Evans from Revenue Cycle Solutions and by Gray Gibbs and Jim Rowley from our ACT. So without further ado, we're going to get started on the first section of our um, presentation and discussion today, which is going to deal with the revenue cycle side of things. So Dan, you know, if you want to take a minute to introduce yourself to our audience and then we'll move right in and Mike, you can do the same thing. Sure. Uh, yes, uh, Stephanie, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the invite today. Uh, my name is Dan Theory. I'm one of the uh, managing principals here at Revenue Cycle Solutions. Uh, our firm's been in business for a little over 18 years, and we specialize primarily in rev, rev cycle operations for uh, hospitals and health systems, as well as uh, interim management services. Fantastic. Um, Welcome, Mike, Dan. Thank you. Do you want to Mike? introduce yourself? Yeah, Mike, Mike Evans. I'm uh co-managing principal with Dan Theory, been with Dan now for the last three years. Uh, by uh, experience and training, I'm a former hospital CEO uh, with about 18 years experience. So I've, I've seen a lot of uh, uh, a lot of perspectives on the business from, from both vantage points as a small business owner and as a hospital CEO. Excellent. So the first topic that we're going to address really is something that we've been getting a lot of questions on. Uh, many of our clients and listeners are really concerned right now about the revenue cycle side of primary practice and specialty practices, as well as you know how you can really build out a contactless patient registration system. So today, we're going to hear from Dan first on what this involves with some great tips. So Dan, take it away. Okay, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, yes, uh, we're working with several of our hospital clients, primarily hospitals and larger health system clients uh, on this contactless registration effort. Um, there's a lot of information out there from various industry sources at, at the present time. I can just share with you today uh, some of the work we've been doing as a company uh, firsthand for our clients. Um, and uh, what is contactless registration? Um, not to oversimplify it, but it's it's essentially uh, working out all the um, all the steps necessary through uh, uh, scheduling a patient, pre-registering a patient, and patient intake. And if you think of all the steps that uh, a, a place is typically involved with, um, we have to move each one of those functions to to a point where there's no patient contact or, or minimal patient contact. So. Um, you know, that, that's been the challenge. Um, I can tell you at the onset, um, there is no one size fits all here. Uh, for as many facilities as we're working with on this, there, there's, there's variation in, in how each of the facilities are, are moving forward and attempting to tackle this. Uh, so when you look at some of the things that need to be done uh, that are a challenge to try to um, create a contactless uh, uh, process with, uh, they include, but are not limited to, some pre-visit forms. Those those forms that we have patients fill out either prior to or at um, at point of registration. Uh, signatures on those forms are, are another um, you know challenge, and, and you have to you know put in some other measures to to achieve the contactless uh, uh, measures. Uh, collect, identify collecting payments at point of uh, registration has been has been uh, a challenge there as well. So this uh, next slide uh, is, is, is something that um, is, is pretty recent. And you can see, and I think it's to not, a, not a great surprise here to, to, our, to our listeners, but uh, you could clearly see here from, from a uh, patient scheduling perspective, 
as well as from a patient registration perspective, that many facilities have either already uh, altered the way they, they do scheduling and registration or are right in the middle of uh, planning to do so. Um, and a much smaller percentage really haven't had um, uh, an opportunity to look at this. But I also want to clarify uh, this, this chart here. It's really measuring uh, organizations that have altered it in, in any way. And, and, and many, of these, many of these adjustments are not ideal. They're more um, out of a crisis uh, situation. A lot of this has kind of come upon us quickly. And, and many facilities were scrambling to, to try to establish this the best they could. So a lot of this, uh, despite what's showing here in these in these charts um, uh, of having altered the process, we'll we'll need to go back and and re relook at that and redesign that and 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 put something in place more for the long term. So um, just wanted to share that with you. It's, it's certainly the trend in both scheduling and in, in pre-reg. Um, so next slide. Um, so starting with scheduling, uh, there's some opportunities, there's challenges in, in, in all of this, but uh, I believe there's some great opportunities uh, here as well, um, based upon the, the work we're doing with, with our clients at, at the present time. Uh, scheduling, uh, you know, we're, you know, you typically we're collecting patient insurance information, demographic and medical information needed at, at point of registration, or I'm sorry, at point of scheduling. Um, it, we also try to get as much insurance information and, and, and get the physician's orders and, uh, and identify what the patient responsibilities are um, as, as much as we can as well. So that's all taken place during, during scheduling. Um, so a small thing that's been added um, as part of this contactless effort is to instruct the patient to not show up prior to uh, their appointment more than, more than 15 minutes prior. And if they do so, uh, we're basically uh, instructing the patient that they have to uh, wait in their car and they'll be contacted by text or by, by uh, cell, cell call uh, to come in at the appropriate time. And, and obviously the effort there is to, is to minimize the number of folks that are uh, typically waiting in the waiting room. Um, another piece that's common now is that no family members uh, are allowed to accompany the patient uh, on, their, on their visits. Uh, and that's in large part being practiced, at least at all of our, our client facilities. So um, with regard to the scheduling, again, uh, you know, there's most hospitals are making a greater effort to, to capture, to do a better job at point of scheduling to capture all insurance, demographic, medical, um, you know, give them that instruction. And where possible, they're, they're having them uh, advance email uh, copies of their insurance card, their their um, ID, their physician orders, uh, that, that's kind of a work in progress. Uh, we're, we're working on several hospitals on that front. So next slide. Um, the next area that's in the middle here uh, between scheduling and the, and the, uh, the data service um, is, is, is what hospitals term as pre-registration. And I can tell you um, for years, and it's still this way to a great degree now, there's, there's still a major disconnect between the patient scheduling function and the patient pre-registration function. So this is one of those opportunities for facilities to really focus on um, combining those functions into one effort. And in doing so, um, it's a more streamlined process. It, it does provide uh, for a better patient experience and better, better uh, patient service. And um, it allows more time for the facility to gather all the essential information, including verification of uh, a patient's insurance. Um, so the next stage is when the patient arrives at, at the facility. There's some, um, you can go to the next slide, please. Um, there's some precautions there and some new things in place there, obviously starting with the, uh, the PPE that the staff is wearing. Uh, a lot more plexiglass everywhere these days, and uh, this is this is no exception. Um, but upon the patient's arrival, uh, we're we're screening, or most facilities are now screening the patients with a series of questions and temperature checks. They're also validating um, what they're there for, confirming the date and 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 what what service uh, they're they're scheduled to have that day. Um, 
And if, they, if all that checks out from a screening perspective, the patients are then uh, directed to, uh, to the clinical area for their service. But before they do that, they, they at times uh, have to um, stop at the registration desk there to, um, to finish out on any, any things that are still deficient. For instance, if, if they still don't have a copy of the card, they may have to uh, you know, view a copy of the card. Uh, forms that need to be signed, um, you know, that's another area. Under, under the current status, uh, we, we were under a uh, health emergency status uh, across the nation right now. And what that means is um, hospitals are able to, uh, to take verbal consents from, from patients and basically sign um, on the forms themselves if the patient was uh, informed verbally and no patient signature is necessary while we're under this, uh, this, this health emergency status. And this now is uh, extended through the end of May and maybe extended longer depending upon the need. So um, that's a big help to most facilities in that they don't have to put a piece of paper or even an electronic signature pad in front of the patients for signature. So that, that's a help at this stage. Um, and with regards to the payments that um, are due from patients, uh, that, that's, uh, typically done in advance over the phone or it's done at point at this point in time that the patients uh, are the only one scanning uh, their card and everything else is done from the other side and beyond the plexiglass. So, um, you know, that's kind of some of the changes that are uh, put in place now for re relating to the contactless registration. Uh, next slide, please. Um, are there any questions on the uh, contactless effort at this point? Yeah, before we move on, Dan, just, you know, a few comments. I think that this has been a great opportunity for healthcare organizations across the country to really explore and review, you know, their registration process. And I think what we've heard from some of our clients that we have found that they learned it was more disjointed than they actually thought it was, meaning mm -hmm. that a patient may have to register three or four times to come in to see their primary care physician because they're having labs drawn, they might be having radiology services. So trying to consolidate all of this into one pre-registration process that applies to all services has been something our clients have been focused on. And I think you addressed that. And I was blown away by one of your first slides that saw that you know nearly 10% of organizations at the time of the survey had not addressed any changes. And I yes. find it hard to imagine that under the state of emergency with all the changes, that one out of 10 didn't change anything. So I'm <laughs> curious what your opinion is of that. Mike, you might have something to weigh in on there as well. Mike? Uh, I mean, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. I, I think given, given what we've all been through with the, uh, with the pandemic, I mean, um, th there can be no improvement without change. I mean, I, I think what, what all hospitals, physician practices have, uh, have experienced is going to force some radical change, and I can uh, I can comment more on that uh, during my piece of the presentation. But I I think um, every administrator really needs to look at uh, all their all their processes, all their procedures, processes to make sure they're as uh, leanly managed as uh, as as possible. I've I've termed this this whole pandemic as one of the great lean management uh, exercises we've ever been through because you're really forced to identify what is of value. And, and what is waste, what's perfunctory, and really focus on what is mission critical. Though that, that has to be the priority, no matter, no matter if it's the revenue cycle or, or, or clinical care, I think we're all being forced to focus on what is most important to, uh, to really our mission. Yeah, I 100% agree. And you know, when we're talking about managing remote staff in the central business office, you know, one of the things our clients have been talking to us about is the fact that before the pandemic, they had one plan in place and it might be building out a very large central business office. In some cases, there was new construction of new buildings that were going to house the finance staff, the HR staff and all these large components. And now that they moved a lot of that remote, the question now is, what do we really need? How big should the operation be and how much can we keep remote? And then more importantly, how do we manage those remote workers ongoing? So I'm really excited about this next, next portion, Dan. Sure, sure. And uh, th thank you for that. And um, I, yes, it, with regard to the remote, and it's it's interesting because we're working for a large uh, a large health system in in the southeast currently, and it, it was just that scenario, Stephanie, whereby we we had gone through a, a, a significant uh, comprehensive plan to move 
to move um, all of our mid-cycle staff, some 200 employees, um, about you know 10 miles up the highway, um, and uh, it was you know we didn't even think about it at the time of planning, but it was a one-for-one -one move. But uh, we had to rapidly uh, uh, you know respond to this COVID matter, and uh, in doing so, um, uh, my associate and I we we moved inside of about a week and a half to get uh, over 200 employees set up from home. It was uh, it was quite a crisis situation and, and all hands on deck. But uh, the good news is we were able to do that. We had some bugs and some things to work out and some IT um, uh, help to do so. But now moving forward here, two plus months, uh, a big discovery has been made here, and the discovery has been uh, you know this this is working pretty well in many many aspects. And, and uh, so senior leadership of this system that we're working for came back to us and, and basically are challenging us to say, you know, we're not sure we need to open up this new building. We're not sure we need all the square footage we originally thought. Um, so our exercise over the past two months has been, um, or I'm sorry, over the past two weeks now has been to go back through the roster that we thought we were going to move and, uh, and really uh, challenge ourselves to see what can continue to uh, be performed uh, remotely. And uh, so what we're finding out, you know, and this is a graph here, a Gallup survey uh, from, you know, three years ago now, you know, you could see healthcare and other industries roughly at about 43% of, uh, of folks uh, uh, working from home. And uh, some of the clients we're working for, uh, we're, we're settling in now at about uh, 65 to 67% of our of our revenue cycle workforce uh, now being able to work to work remote so you can see that that just continues to continues to climb so um in 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 moving to the next slide here um they, you know this doesn't come without its challenges you know i think i think in a crisis situation we quickly mobilize to get everybody connected and to maintain uh day-to-day -day operations but if um you know, let's face it, it wasn't ideal because our, our practices, our processes, our procedures weren't really uh, completely designed for folks to work remotely. So that's the piece that we need to circle back on and, and kind of redesign to some extent uh, for, for uh, this to be a lasting uh, long-term uh, solution. So these are, these are some of the takeaways I have uh, with some firsthand experience in, in uh, managing remote staff. Uh, first, it's, it's to clarify the schedules. Uh, uh, it's important. Uh, some folks need to collaborate throughout the day, so they need to be on similar schedules. Uh, sometimes uh, there is an outside business need, like that's when insurance companies are open or patients are available to talk to or whatever. So the schedules are still important and they need to be set um, for a variety of reasons. Um, defining roles is, is really key as well. Um, most folks are, are in hospitals with, uh, with various titles, but um, we had to go back through and, and really take another look at their, their primary functions and, and how they do, how they perform their work. Um, all with uh, this remote uh, concept in mind. And, and uh, it was surprising because a lot of them, we, with, with little adjustment, we were able to get them more focused on, on what the primary role of the job is and take away the incidentals and kind of reassign those elsewhere in order to maximize the number of folks that were able to have work remote and, and work uh, in, a, in a productive, effective way. Um, and creating the workflows is obviously part and parcel of that. And these are all things that we needed to, to take a second look at and, and, to, uh, and, to, and to further uh, revise. Uh, is there any questions on anything yet? Okay. Now, so on um, the next slide, I think one of the questions that has come up is flexible scheduling. Mm -hmm. And you know, traditionally, there have been very set office hours and very set schedules. And in the COVID-19 world and the homeschool world and everything else that people have been dealing with, I think flexible scheduling has come up. So one of the questions we've had is, you know, how do you manage the flexible scheduling component and determine what the best model is? Yes, uh, great, great question. Um, it, it, and my answer is it depends. <laughs> um, but but um, some of the flexible scheduling is very beneficial. I'll give you an example. So we might have uh, pre-registration staff that need to verify and uh, and and check uh, patients' authorization and have packets uh, 
ready for the patient's arrival the next day. That's an example of, an, of a function that's ideally done on second or third shift uh, to be ready for the, 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 the next morning. Um, but in other instances, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, staff need to collaborate during certain business hours or they need to be working when insurance companies and patients are available. So, but overall, it's great to have that flexibility and we let that, uh, we, we really let the primary functions of the job and the business need of, of, the, uh, of the function uh, drive that. But uh, by all means, if we can be flexible with it, and, and, and uh, we are, and we try to accommodate the, uh, the staff the best we can. And so that, that to me is a, a net plus, no doubt about it. And one more uh, comment before we move on to the defining roles. I think from a productivity perspective, aligning the schedules of the staff, you know, in that flexible workspace, as you mentioned, Dan, can really help to align workflow and have a lot of the tasks completed before the office staff is even ready to start appointments the next morning. And so from that component, there are a lot of patient registration things that can happen in the evening. And I think it's a great model for productivity and to really consider what times a day are best for some tasks to be completed. And as you mentioned, you have to have access to the insurance companies. But it's, it strikes me that it's going to be a great move for productivity of revenue cycle registration staff in general. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I just think it'll make the overall revenue cycle effort uh, more uh, more productive. Um, there's just so much opportunity there uh, with this with this remote setup and so many more options uh, for us to take advantage of. So that's working out well. Um, defining rules and performance expectation. Uh, this is a challenge both for the new staff as well as the, um, the existing team members. And um, okay, there we go. And uh, you know, sometimes it's harder. Um, yeah, you've got to switch things up in terms of the contact with the remote staff, making sure that we're more readily available uh, to answer questions, to provide guidance. Um, if they have an issue, uh, we want to make sure that we're the contact. Uh, the, it has open lines of communication because obviously that's lost when you don't have, you know, that, that physical presence there in the office. Um, but uh, going forward, uh, all of this um, remote, uh, the, the remote aspect of this needs to be really baked into all the onboarding. Uh, so typically, historically, traditionally, we've hired new employees in for our clients. We, we give them the, the regular training. And, and then we send them to their workstation to begin the work. Well, there's some extra components to that now with, with, this, remote, uh, with this remote component uh, to, to everything they do. So that's, that's being uh, worked in there. Uh, creating workflows, again, I think we, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, you know, that is one, one thing that most hospitals should, should pay attention to, all of the historical workflows that you have in place that your folks have been following. Uh, you definitely want to review those and make sure that they're conducive and can be adequately supported in a, in a remote uh, model. Um, and uh, some things are going to need to be adjusted and tweaked. And uh, what we've ended up doing uh, for a lot of our hospital clients is, uh, is really focusing uh, the, the bulk of our staff on the, on the primary functions that they perform and paying special attention to the incidentals that they they historically performed, and these are the same types of things that would require them to be on site uh, physically. So we stripped those away and, and got those uh, condensed down to a few staff members that are on site in, a, in more of a support role to perform those functions. Okay. Um, promoting effective communication on, on slide 12. Um, technology gas, yeah. So I think we can jump right over to slide 13. And, and these are some of the things that hospitals should pay special attention to. You know, if the expectations there for staff to perform uh, many of their duties uh, remotely, then I, I think the facility needs to be ready, prepared, and, and uh, proactive uh, with, with the technology component, both in the, in the way they, uh, they provide the software, I'm sorry, the, uh, the hardware, um, everything from laptops to desktops to uh, to uh, headsets and uh, all the things that uh, a person will now need to work remote, uh, that, that needs to be provided. Um, connectivity really needs to be uh, tested uh, in, a, in obviously security is paramount today in, in so many uh, hospitals for, for all, the, all the known reasons. Uh, so I would, I would encourage hospitals to first, you know, look at the hardware, make sure 
and preferably anybody working from home should have a, a, a hospital a machine supplied by the hospital um, with all the appropriate security measures and, um, and capabilities uh, loaded on. Um, the connectivity really uh, needs to be uh, supported by IT, monitored by IT, and just to ensure those the, uh, the connectivity is there and the speed at which it needs to function is, is, is present. Um, and uh, I think that's it for that. If we can go to slide 14, um, this is another area that um, I, I would encourage hospitals to look at if they haven't done so already. Uh, many, many hospitals are still uh, working directly out of their legacy systems. And in many instances, the, the, the ability for a hospital to adequately monitor the production and the quality of work from their revenue cycle staff is, is lacking to, to, to be nice. <laughs> um, I, so I, I think a lot more uh, you know, enhancement can be, can be uh, had there. Um, either to further enhance the legacy system um, that they're using to allow for greater monitoring of, of staff production, greater monitoring of, of the quality of the work they're doing. And if that's not possible with the legacy system, I would encourage hospitals to consider uh, use of a layover system. There are several out there in the marketplace. Um, I, I know um, uh, with some of my clients, we're using Medmetrics, other ones are using Aurora, and there's probably a half a dozen others uh, uh, layover type systems that hospitals can use. The reason I bring this up is because measuring um, staff productivity and the quality is paramount, especially in this remote working environment. You can't just send folks home uh, that have connectivity without you having a good idea of, of, of what they're doing and how they're performing and, um, and how productive they are. So I, I would encourage hospitals to uh, really scrutinize that if they haven't done so already, um, because it's, it's, it's going to be, um, you know, important to the longevity of this, uh, this setup. So uh, open to any questions or comments on that. I think, you know, productivity, it's probably my favorite slide out of the entire presentation, as you can imagine. And it's definitely a hot button for us. Uh, we get asked often, you know, how can we manage our metrics in production? And I believe it becomes even more important in the remote setting. So it's definitely something to have a handle on, making sure that expectations are clear, communicating those expectations with your staff. And then most importantly, having the accountability system in place that you can actually monitor and follow up. You know, a report that's going straight to their inbox is great, but if you're not actually going to take action on their performance metrics or what you're seeing, then it's really, you know, not going to provide you with the results that you need. So great slide, and I really okay. think that's an important piece. Sure. Yeah, so let's wrap up with, you know, I have, you have one slide on quality, Dan, so we'll do that, okay. and then I have a good question for both of you before we move on to funding. Okay, okay, great. And uh, yeah, with regard to the quality, some basic things a hospital could do at any point in time, and I would encourage is to, uh, is to just do periodic audits of, of specific account populations. If you want to, there's no better way to know firsthand uh, what your billers are doing, what your collectors are doing, how cash application is, um, is posting payments, adjustments, write-offs, than, um, than to take a representative account population and just audit those. And I think that's probably the single best thing you could do to, to get a better handle on uh, what's, what's occurring there. But again, yeah, you, you absolutely need the ability to measure the, the production and the quality of your staff's work. And, and it shouldn't be an onerous process. It should be one that you can do at minimum on a, on a daily, weekly basis, um, and ideally on a concurrent basis. And many, and many of those layover systems out there really enable you to do just that. So again, I would, uh, I would challenge uh, the hospital leadership to take a closer look at their, their current abilities and, and uh, take the steps necessary to enhance uh, those capabilities. Excellent, a lot of great information, Dan, appreciate it. So, before we hear from ACT and updates on funding that's available you know, through the hospitals and requirements, I'd like to ask the two of you just a general question on revenue cycles, uh, and we'll move into some general questions you know, on strategy, Mike, for you at the end. But, you know, sure. Right now, you know, CFOs, controllers, finance, financial teams are really sitting back and thinking, you know, how is COVID-19 going to impact us? What do we need to be prepared for? And you know, what from a revenue cycle position do we need to do to make sure that we're accelerating cash capture? So 
in your opinion, what are the you know three to five things that all CFOs and revenue cycle staff need to be focusing on right now? You know, if they haven't done it already, what should they be doing today? Okay. Uh, Mike, you want to go first? Or you yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. First, I, I think uh, this pandemic has really uh, brought maybe more focus on the revenue cycle. I, I think it's it's probably more important now than it's ever been to have an efficient and productive revenue cycle, both on the hospital side and the physician practice side, because uh, both uh, both sides of that equation have taken a taken a big hit. Uh, you know, generally speaking, I, I would say that, uh, and, and Dan can echo this, uh, everywhere we go, we, we want to emphasize that uh, there'd be a revenue cycle team that meets at least monthly to review all the processes, procedures, uh, all the key metrics. Every hospital should have a scoreboard, some kind of a scorecard of uh, all the key metrics uh, for the uh, the front end, the middle, and the back end of the revenue cycle. I think that's key to review those monthly to make sure you're uh, you know you're on target with uh, with all your all your performance metrics. All your employees should know what those are. So that's uh, that, that's certainly one thing that needs to occur. Uh, the second thing that comes to mind is that the revenue cycle really needs a, a full-blown assessment like every two years. There are too many moving parts. There, there are too many uh, updates, uh, continual updates to that revenue cycle that need to be uh, managed. So to have an assessment done every two years is probably worthwhile. Uh, that includes a charge description master. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I am continually surprised at how many hospitals don't update that routinely. I think that's uh, that's critical. And then I, I quote a, um, a very, very good CFO who said, the revenue cycle is never, ever completely fixed. So it, uh, it, it bears monitoring um, continually, especially now, especially now. So Dan? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Mike. But yes, um, I, I think to answer your question, Stephanie, I, I, you know, I, I encourage most CFOs at this point in time, it's an advantage, um, even though many facilities have received an accelerated Medicare payment that from a cash flow perspective will, will bridge the gap for many facilities. Um, you know, the last uh, 90 days worth of revenue is, is, is almost non-existent for most facilities. So um, it was a great opportunity for most to kind of work their old AR, but uh, it's also an opportunity now while these, these uh, younger aging categories are, are relatively empty, uh, to to really challenge the IT and the systems they use uh, for for much greater integration. Uh, still today, many hospitals we see um, is too is too disparate of of, uh, of a process. Um, I think there's still significant opportunity for greater integration, uh, data flows through systems to streamline processes from from beginning to end. And uh, not to oversimplify that, but um, that that to me is still the biggest most benefit. Uh, most beneficial thing that they could pursue at this time. Great advice. I, I really love those ideas. And I think it's, you know, that's a great checklist for all CFOs and controllers to look at. And you mentioned one piece in there, Dan, that's going to give a great transition into the funding portion of this. You talked about the prepaid Medicare fees that a lot of hospitals have received. And that's mm -hmm. something that ACT, Arnett Carbis Toothman is going to talk to us a little bit about you know, in the funding portion of this, and we were talking about the cost accounting component and the fact that many hospitals have received prepayments on future Medicare patients. And with those payments, you know, the thing to keep in mind is it's not a grant. It's not money that's coming in. It's money that already is prepaid for future services. So it's really a way that you have to understand that that cash flow that you have and the cash that you have today is going to need to be the cash flow for your patients that you're going to see down the road. So let's move on to the next side of this and okay. welcome Jim Rayleigh from Arnett Carbis Toothman and we're going to hear about some funding updates that he has for everyone uh, concerning really you know what funding is out there what strategies do you need to take and how do you really account for that so welcome Jim thanks Stephanie and I, I have along with me uh, Mr. Gibbs who's on the phone um, so Greg I don't know if you want to introduce yourself I will just uh, briefly, uh, you know, Greg Gibbs. I am a, a partner with uh, Arnett Carbis Toothman along with Jim Rayleigh. Uh, you know, ACT is a large regional accounting firm that specializes in healthcare, uh, primarily serving uh, clients in Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and, and mainly all over the country. So I'll, I'll let Jim go ahead and introduce himself and, and take off, and then we'll. When we get back after his uh, presentation, then we'll uh, address a few things that uh, we have on our mind that we're seeing as uh, major issues with funding. 
Thank you. Uh, like Greg, I'm also a partner with ACT. Um, work 100% of my time in healthcare, uh, and 90% of my time within healthcare is spent working with uh, acute care providers, meaning hospitals, LTACs, uh, providers of that, that nature. So uh, like Greg said, we just want to take a couple of minutes this afternoon, uh, base set a little bit on the provider relief fund, and then also talk about as, as we work through the as we work through the slides, we'll talk about some of the other funding opportunities that might be out there. Um, largely, we're going to ignore or set aside the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, we think a lot of time has been spent on that, and there's been a lot of webinars. Um, we're going to focus on the Provider Relief Fund as we as we go through the through the slides. So, if you want to go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, as, as most folks know, the Provider Relief Fund really was established through the CARES Act in, in March. And then subsequently, um, it was also additionally funded through the Paycheck Protection Program and Healthcare Enhancement Act. Uh, that actually added another $75 billion to the Provider Relief Fund. So going over to the next slide. Now, so we've got $175 billion in the fund at this point, or, or we started with 175 billion rather. Um, to date, a little bit over 70 billion has been dispersed. 50 billion uh, was really the first round of disbursements and that was split into two tranches. Um, many of you would have participated in this, this round of funding. Um, and if, if you watched it closely, you probably noticed that the uh, the funding was a little bit turbulent in just how it was rolled out and uh, how it was funded. So the first 30 of the 50 billion, uh, they actually came out, the 30 billion was based on a provider's Medicare revenues or how much they, they had billed traditional Medicare. Um, and then subsequent to that 30 billion going out, HHS came back and reshuffled the whole deck uh, they added 20 billion in into the pot and uh, really recalibrated the entire payment so that at the end of the day, your payment should amount to about 2% of your program service revenue. And if you're a nonprofit, um, that would be line nine on your 990. <clears throat> now, one thing I do want to point out here, uh, one, one important deadline that is coming up HHS has, has at this point deferred the deadline for attesting to these payments a couple of times. Um, it, at this juncture, though, they have come out and said June 3rd uh, is, the, is the last deadline they're going to issue for attesting to these funds. Um, so if, if you've not gone out and looked at the terms and conditions and considered doing the attestation, uh, I would certainly encourage you to do so. Um, depending on how you were paid in the first two tranches of payment there may be an additional payment coming uh, but but in order to get that that last payment you do need to go through the attestation process so that was the first round of disbursements the second round was uh, and that that's where hhs slowed down a little bit and said okay we're going to target the next couple of distributions so the second round of distributions was the 12 billion that went to the uh, COVID hotspots or the high impact areas. Now that 12 billion uh, was split up among 395 hospitals. So it doesn't take a, take a great mathematician to look at 12 billion and realize it went to only 395 hospitals to quickly realize that um, that high impact area distribution was, was some big dollars to very few hospitals. Uh, so we did see some significant payments go out in that rounding. Now on the next slide, um, where we see, and, and where we've seen a lot of our clients really impacted uh, positively by this fund is the 10 billion that went out to rural providers. So the facilities that were impacted by this round of funding uh, were critical access hospitals, rural health clinics, rural PPS hospitals, um, and rural FQHEs or federally qualified health centers. 
the this round of funding, you know, it, it was an interesting, it was really interesting how, how CMS came out and did or HHS structured the payments. Um, they set base payments depending on provider type. Um, hospitals had a base payment of about a million dollars, where rural health clinics had a base payment of a hundred thousand. Now, the way the calculation was done, really your your first 10 million of expenses uh really drove the amount of payment. So if, if you're a hospital and you had over 10 million in expenses, largely your payment was going to be a little bit over $3 million. Um, after you get over to the 10 million in expenses, the payment really drops off uh, or the increase in payment, incremental increase in payment drops off. Um, so that was what in the, in the world of hospitals, uh, largely the biggest impact we've seen to clients has been through this rural uh, targeted allocation. Now, there was some additional funds that went to Indian Health Services, as well as HRSA for uninsured COVID patients. Uh, we're not really going to get into that on, on in this session, uh, but we put those in there just to point out that that did happen. The last bullet point here, I think, is, is really important that there's still $100 billion left out there that has not been dispersed yet. Um, at, at, at the beginning of this funding, her, her HHS was really moving at about one disbursement per week. Um, if, you, if you remember the timeline, they would typically roll out the payment later in the week and then a couple of days later come out and uh, really get into the detail on the payments. Now, we haven't heard anything from HHS for a couple of weeks. What we're being told is that HHS is, is working through the Medicaid data. Um, if, if you follow the HHS funding, they did come out and say that they expected to do targeted payments based on Medicaid providers or targeted for Medicaid providers. Um, so we do expect to see something in, in the coming weeks, but uh, at this point we have not seen anything. So go ahead to the next slide. So, you know, when you're looking at the funding, um, if you watched CMS Administrator Seema Verma's initial comments, she framed the provider relief fund payments as uh, essentially no string to, strings attached payments, and she she also clarified that they were grants, not loans. Now, um, no strings attached turned out to be not uh, exactly true in that the next day when the payments did come out, uh, there were 11 pages of terms and conditions. Um, obviously, some of the terms and conditions do cause issues for uh, various hospitals. You know, uh, something that a lot of hospitals are dealing with right now on the rural side is that at this point, they've received funds largely in excess of their lost revenues or incurred expenses. So they are sitting on quite a bit of cash right now that uh, at this point in time, they cannot justify. Um, some of the other issues that, that are starting to come out are in the terms and conditions, they, uh, they come out and say that the, the funds can't be used to reimburse expenses or lost revenues attributable to other sources. So when you are uh, talking hospitals, especially rural hospitals and critical access hospitals and rural health clinics where you are cost reimbursed, um, that certainly causes some issues as far as uh, just calculating exactly what your lost revenues are um, and, and, and how to take that into account when, when you're looking at cost reimbursement versus um, reimbursement for lost revenues. We also, when you're looking at some of the other issues, entities that have received uh, Paycheck Protection Program monies or FEMA monies or um, other monies from states or reimbursement increases from states, um, there's a lot of issues that are going to come out with these provider relief funds uh, that, that um, we're just going to have to wait and see, it, it, unfortunately. Now, the last two items are, are probably the biggest 
biggest two items because I think they drive everything above them. Um, HHS has come out and said that they these funds are going to be subject to federal audit, and they have come out and said that there are going to be reporting requirements with these funds, uh, but they just they haven't come out and said exactly what the reporting requirements are. So that's that's where we are with the provider relief funds currently. We want to go ahead to the next slide. Um, I think you know when we're looking at hospitals and health systems. Um, certainly, there is a lot of uncertainty right now with where is your cash position going to be in six months or in three months. Um, as states start to do their soft reopenings, we're seeing hospitals reopen and volumes aren't popping back in a lot of cases the way they were expected to. Um, so a, a couple of things that, that we have uh, noticed and that we think are very important or that um, you know, CFOs, CEOs, those in charge uh, should really look at their financials, understand that you're gonna continue to see significant fluctuations in your financials for a couple of months at least to where you go from a bust really. And, and uh, if you all remember back uh, a short month or two ago, there was an incredible amount of uncertainty as volumes were dropping off. Um, cash was drying up very quickly. Uh, there was really a whole lot of panic in the market. And then some of these provider relief funds came out and uh, facilities may have went from one or two days cash on hand to 100 days cash on hand. Um, so we expect to see that boom bust cycle continue. Uh, and, and as it does, we think, you know, communication is obviously key in, in any of these situations. Uh, but communicating with your lenders, with your workforce, with community, um, looking at really all your stakeholders in, within your entity uh, and keeping open lines of communication with them is, is, is paramount in these situations. The third bullet point in here is document. Um, you know, the provider relief funds are largely to reimburse entities for lost revenues or expenses incurred uh in in relation to to covid so um and we'll probably get into this here in in the next slide or two or in, in our following q a um when you start trying to measure something that doesn't exist meaning lost revenues um there is not a whole lot of certainty at this point hhs hasn't given us a a great framework for how they, they expect that to be done. They've said, look at um, prior year to current year or budget to actual, but they also said any reasonable estimation is, is, is acceptable. So uh, in these situations where we don't know what the equation is gonna look like, or if HHS is gonna give us a definite uh, method for estimating lost revenues, Obviously, anything you come up with right now, document it, document it clearly, retain the documentation. Um, we actually recommend looking at your lost revenues a couple of different ways, um, but in all cases, document it, retain it. Make sure when you're looking at your expenses, you're tracking every dollar that's spent, you're retaining invoices, you're keeping a log of expenses incurred and just, uh, why they were incurred, how they relate to the provider relief funds monies, and uh, how and when they were spent. And obviously, uh, the last point here is plan. Uh, make sure, and we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, you know, the Medicare advance payments, those were loans, um, which is going to cause really your, your cash flow over the next six, eight, 12 months to be much lower than it otherwise would have been. Um, so plan for that. Try and reach out to your lenders, get the additional liquidity available to you. Uh, start lining those those monies up now. If you've laid off workers, largely we've seen that um, some of those folks have gone out and got gotten other jobs. Uh, so assume that some of your workforce is not going to return from furlough. And then obviously play out the what if scenarios. Um, if there is a another sub subsequent shutdown um, or if 
On the other hand, if, if volumes really come back strong, uh, do you have the capacity or, or, or uh, do you have a plan to handle that? So that was, uh, that's our, our, our quick overview of the provider relief funds and some of the issues we're seeing. Um, do you have any questions? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we've heard, Jim, is that there's a consensus that they believe that hospitals should not profit from COVID-19. What do you think the government may do in the future to, you know, monitor that a little closely or Greg, you know, Mike, anyone, what do you think is going to happen to make sure that hospitals aren't profiting from COVID-19? I think you touched upon it, Jim, that, you know, you have to track your revenue versus past revenue. But I suspect that as this moves forward, there's going to be a lot of reporting requirements. Uh, one of the questions that we had was how can we best be prepared to respond to the request that we're going to have for information from the federal government? Yes, um, I, I agree with you. At, at some point, I think uh, the media is going to start to see, and, and as quarterly um, as, as uh, quarterly reporting goes out, and we actually saw it when when HHS first released the payments on uh, the provider relief funds. Um, the news media jumps all over it. They love to see that a that a nonprofit hospital got a hundred million dollars. Um, and and that you know that just inflames everybody. So I I do agree that at some point there's going to be clawbacks, um, especially you know the last hundred billion is is largely going to drive I think what happens in in how HHS disperses that money. I think that's going to drive uh, really drive the subsequent clawback of it. Uh, but you know as as we discussed there is no way right now no clear way to to measure lost revenues um i mean it, they didn't exist um so like i said try and figure out as many different ways either look at trend analysis look at your and we say old budget your pre-covid budget to actuals um look at look at the the two-month trending if you're trending up or if you're trending down um, every hospital has a different story and just how they measure lost revenues is going to vary widely between facilities. Uh, but I would tell folks, get as granular as possible. We have some clients that are going clear down to uh, cafeteria sales, medical record sales, um, as, as granular as they can possibly go. Uh, get granular, document it, and... and uh, Unfortunately, wait and see, I guess, and, and see how HHS uh, really, what the reporting requirements look like. Perfect. And Mr. Gibbs, I think this question may be best suited for you. And, you know, it is right now we're experiencing a lot of volatility in our financial statements and a lot of unknowns. From an auditor's perspective, you know, what are you most concerned about for your clients moving forward? Well. Right now, a lot of these funds, uh, how hospitals are accounting for them and how those will either be loans that have to be paid back or grants that can be taken into income is one of the big concerns that we have for financial reporting. Uh, fortunately, a lot of hospitals will have either a September or December year end, and you'll have a little bit more time to have information to kind of sort through uh, what the resolution of those funds will be. Um, I think I would refer back again to what Jim said is, uh, you know, the most important thing you can do is keep detailed, meticulous records of what's going on and document it well and, and uh, you know, keep, uh, keep that uh, uh, for support for future uh, funding requests also. So that, that's really the biggest thing. The other thing is really just overall financial viability uh, of hospitals and health systems. As we perform financial statement audits, we have to determine if a hospital is a going concern or not. And, and hospitals and board members are asking us questions about, you know, what's our financial viability? Can we survive this? And, and again, I think Jim talked about financial planning and how important that is. And the, the issue right now is everyone is so busy and so 
uh, caught up in dealing with current issues is they do have to stop and realize that, that long range financial planning is still very important. Dealing with capital needs, dealing with what's going on in the bond market, in addition to uh, worrying about accounting for the funds and, and then also what, what are you gonna do if there is a surge in patients, uh, which are one hopes for. So those financial issues uh, for us auditor types uh, do keep us up already at night and will continue to, but, uh, you know, there'll be, there'll be more information, but I think that's the main thing, Stephanie, that, that I would, uh, alert everyone to pay attention to. Thank you. And I think this is probably a question that, um, might be fielded by anyone, but, you know, what are your biggest recommendations right now? My staff has worked to put together a 26 week cash flow projection. And we're trying our best to do our planning to make sure we have enough cash to make it through the next six months. However, are there any recommended scenarios we need to plan for? Or what's your best guess at how to plan? So this can probably be fielded by anyone. <laughs> well, Stephanie, I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. I mean, I, I heard uh, Jim and Greg both mention that there's so much uncertainty in the market right now. It's not, it's not funny. And I think that is very true. And if I'm a hospital CFO or CEO, I'm going to try my very best right now, starting now, to uh, take as much uncertainty out of the equation as, as possible. I want to try to control my own fate as best I can. If, if I'm a CEO who has just made it through or about to make it through uh, the, the, the whole pandemic issue here, where I've taken big hits to my, uh, to my revenue, I'm going to want to enact some strategies that are going to help me longer term. And, and I think you're going to see probably a rash of, uh, of affiliations and mergers over the next couple of years. Um, again, I, I wouldn't want to go through this alone again. And I think what we're seeing in terms of supplemental funding uh, by, the, by the government, whether it's uh, you know, Medicare, whether there's going to be some clawback uh, provisions or, or, or not, um, I, I don't think it's enough. I, I think it's a, it's a short-term solution. I don't think it's going to be uh, the be-all and end-all in terms of uh, securing a more viable future for many hospitals. Unfortunately, I, I think that um, many hospitals may end up in bankruptcy or even closing particularly the, the ones that are small and rural, uh, those hospitals have been, uh, have been besieged by, uh, by, by reimbursement shortfalls for years now, okay? And then you throw one more straw on top of that, uh, and, it, and it's a big one. Uh, it's it's going to be very hard for, uh, for hospitals to, uh, to, to recover. You know, there's going to be a lot of things happening with the, uh, with, I think, uh, reimbursement and, and with insurers. Uh, I think there's going to be a, probably a, a harder, faster move to uh, uh, the whole volume to value equation. I think it's going to be uh, in, more in play. I think there's going to be probably risk, more risk arrangements. If I'm a CFO, I'm going to take a look at all my contracts. I'm going to take a look at my, uh, my physician contracts, my union contracts, my insurance contracts, and, and see what I can do there to free up some more money. I don't know how uh, hospitals, uh, you know, are, are, are uh, we'll, we'll continue to sustain employing physicians when they each each physician is is touted to lose one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars per year, particularly when hospital volumes are going down, and will continue to go down. So that that's a real conundrum for hospitals. How do you how do you sustain losing practices when overall my revenues are going to decline? So that, that that's something that's going to need to be to be worked on. And, and you know my mantra has always been, particularly from the revenue cycle side, I want to capture every single penny. Of financial credit for all the clinical work that we do, somehow, some way, you, you you've got to be able to take that take that stance. So, uh, you know, it, it, there's going to be continued cost cutting, and uh, you know, there's going to have to be continued uh, efforts to uh, to increase revenue. Uh, but I'd want to control my own fate as best I can. Jim, Mr. Gibbs, anything you want to add to that? I, I'd echo what Mike said. Um, you know, to the to the folk, to the folks that asked the question about how they have a 26 week uh, cash flow projection, I think that's great. Um, you know, the the quick, easy answer is anytime you're you're dealing with uh, emergency situations, uh, cash is king. So stack up as much cash as you can. Reach out to your lenders uh, to the point you can get a get a larger line of credit available to you. Uh, I'm not saying go borrow on it, but get that line of credit available to you. Uh, assume the worst and uh, hope for the best, I guess, is, is, is probably the most succinct way of, of saying it. Yeah. 
I think so. And I'll wrap up. We have one more question, but I will just say that, you know, I was, I think we were all surprised at the amount of change that had to happen in the first week or two of the pandemic as everything moved remote. We moved, brought on a lot of tele, you know, medicine, telehealth, artificial intelligence solutions, security features. So as an industry, we had more change probably in two weeks than, you know, I'll say pro maybe 10 years. Uh, as an industry, healthcare has very, been very slow to change. Uh, slow to react. We tend to have a history of planning and planning and planning to plan. And, you know, I think in this situation, the advice that I would give, you know, to executives, senior leadership teams, this is not the time to sit around and dwell on if you should make a decision or make a decision for the next three to four weeks and then ponder it and guess, is this the right one or not? This is a time to take as much data in as you can to understand the situations and to respond. Uh, we're not going to have the time to respond as an industry three to four months from now. A lot of hospitals have the PPP loan, uh, that eight weeks of you know support. They have the you know prepaid Medicare payments that's going to run out. So the you know guidance that we've been giving is just look at all the data, take time, understand the situation, and as a senior le leadership team, put in place a strategy and make sure it's a strategy that you can stand behind and be quick to change it if you need to. But you have to act and you have to yeah. act quickly. And so yeah. the last question that came in and, you know, Mike, Dan, I'm not sure if you agree to this or not, but the question was, you mentioned that there are a lot of revenue cycle solutions benchmarks. So number one, would it be possible for us to receive a copy of that if we reach out? And then number two, what do you think are the top three to five our revenue cycle benchmarks that are in place today? Uh, yeah, we can uh, we can certainly supply you with uh, what we consider to be like our, our top 10 revenue cycle metrics. Uh, and, and Dan is best uh, versed in terms of detailing exactly what those are. But there are probably two or three for, uh, you know, patient access, uh, mid-revenue cycle in terms of uh, coding, documentation. And of course, on the PFS end, there are uh, a litany of, uh, you know, days cash on hand, those, those kind of things. But we can get you our top 10 in terms of uh, what we look for. And Dan, you're, you're here. Why don't you comment on it? Sure, sure, no problem. And yeah, we'd be happy to share uh, whoever wants to reach out to us, who would be happy to share the uh, typical metrics that we use. Uh, as Mike alluded to, that we, we do set up for our clients uh, key, what we consider to be the most key metrics in each of the web cycle uh, areas. Um, and I say, I would say right now, um, it's, it's uh, you know, a, a standard measurement is uh, the the uh, cash to uh, gross charge and how that's performing and 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 um, another area I think is worth taking a second look at in this day and age is um, your payment accuracy with your managed care contracts as well as your the the leakage you might be experiencing by way of denials or reduced payments it's 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 a good time to take a cold hard look at that and as Mike alluded to earlier um, you really take another look at those uh, provider contracts vendor contracts and 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 see what you can do. But um, yes, we'd be happy to share those. Excellent, thank you. So this, thank you. We have no further questions from our audience, so we'll just conclude with, are there any lasting you know, words of advice, counsel that any of you have for the audience, for our listeners, for our clients, and for the healthcare industry at large? Well, I'll, I'll give you one, Stephanie, based upon the comments that, that, that you made. I mean, we've been forced to undergo a lot of change in, in the last uh, few weeks, uh, last couple of months, actually. Uh, I would encourage people not to try to recapture the past of two or three months ago. Okay, I think there's too much change that uh, that is underfoot right now. I'd, I'd be looking at where's the business going? How do I get there? Not try to get back to where I was uh, back in, uh, in, in in January and February. I'd, I'd, I'd be looking ahead and how I, how I need to change my business to adapt to what's coming down the pike. I think that's Please. great advice. It's changing, yeah. you know, living in a yeah. virtual world. Yeah. And I would I would echo what Mike said. Um, I think the the healthcare world has changed materially. Um, some for the good, some for the bad, but uh, it has changed. Um, it's not done changing yet. Um, so so like I said uh, to the earlier question, at this point, plan as much as you can. Expect the worst and uh, hope for the best. It's it's uh, nobody knows what tomorrow is going to bring. Yeah. yeah, I certainly agree with that. One of my favorite phrases right now that you hear often is, you know, always go to zero. 
So whether it's zero budgeting or zero, pretend like you are not going to have any revenue coming in in the next three months, go to zero. And what are you going to need to do to sustain? And I think that's you know great advice for a lot of hospitals. You know, where are we where are we? Let's assume our volume drops to zero tomorrow. What are we going to need to do to you know correct it? What are we going to need to do to reach out to our patient population? How are we going to sustain? What do we do to communicate that we have safe environments for our patients to come to? So it's a very interesting time that we're living through. And I really appreciate all of your you know, comments today and the information provided from the funding uh, side of things, as well as the Revenue Cycle Solutions. So Greg, Jim, Mike, Dan, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure. This virtual roundtable discussion was brought to you by Altius Healthcare Consulting Group. For more information about anything you heard on today's roundtable, or to learn about services provided to hospitals and healthcare delivery systems by Altius Healthcare Consulting Group, visit our webpage www.altiushcg.com. To be able to get updates on future roundtable discussions, please send an email to info, that's I-N-F-O, at A-L-T-I-U-S-H-C-G.com, and let us know that you'd like to be added to our mailing list. Those on our mailing list will be the first to find out about future roundtable discussions. Thank you so much. Have a great day.